7.02 on a Wednesday. Happy Wednesday, everybody. Stay warm out there. It's going to be cold the next couple days. You're listening to the Halford & Bruff Show on Sportsnet 650. Halford & Bruff of the Morning is brought to you by the Delari family of Acura dealers. Experience the Delari difference today by visiting your nearest Delari Acura dealer today. Hour 2 of this program, it is underway. Hour 2 is brought to you by North Star Metal Recycling. Vancouver's premier metal recycler pays the highest prices on scrap metal. North Star Metal Recycling, they recycle. You get paid, Jason. We're coming to you live from the Kintech studio, Kintech Footwear and Orthotics, Canada's favorite orthotics provider, supported by over 2,500 five-star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at Kintech.net. So last night in Nashville, the Canucks lost in a shootout 5-4 to the Preds. It was looking like a regulation loss until the Canucks scored a couple of goals in the last couple of minutes uh, to force overtime and the shootout. Kuzmenko was very good, scored another two goals. Myers and Stillman were very bad. And after the game, Rick Tockett wasn't really in the mood to bury them and to go on a long speech about how they need to be better. All he said was, yeah, they had a tough night. And there was a follow-up question. Does his team need to be more robust in front of its net? Tougher in front of a net. Tockett, this is all from IMAX article, by the way. Tockett goes, yep, yep, yeah, they do. And you could tell watching the scrum that he was biting his lip. Sure. And and he was probably just like, listen, we got to get out of here. We got to travel to St. Louis. I'm not going to stay here a long time and bury these guys. It was a really, really rough night for Tyler Myers and Riley Stillman. Mm -hmm. And the discussion on social media on Twitter last night was all about the Canucks defense and how they're going to fix it. Or some people didn't even get into the fix it mode. They were just bemoaning it. And I threw out a link to the 46 defensemen that the Canucks have used since 2014-15 which was when Jim Benning came in and Trevor Linden came in. So I just went back to that era because this era, or the start of the era, this era has not been very good. And in terms of games played, the two leaders since 2014-15 are Alex Edler and Chris Tanev. Okay, well, they're not part of the organization anymore, obviously. The third is Troy Stetcher. The fourth is Ben Hutton. And then you've got Tyler Myers, Quinn Hughes, Lucas Spiza, Alex Biega, Eric Gabranson, and Luke Shen. What a collection. Those are the top 10 in terms of games played. And you're looking at it and going, the Canucks have found one defenseman that they really like in the last, what, almost a decade? We got so excited when Quinn Hughes came aboard that we finally had a franchise defenseman that we stopped looking for other ones. <laughs> <laughs> we were just so excited and enamored. We're like, look at him. He's so good. It is the, uh, for me at least, for me, others will have other opinions, but for me it is the defining failure of the Jim Benning era. So what you're saying is that there are multiple failures, but that's the defining that's one. That's the defining one. Got it. That is the, because, um, you know, listen, there, there wasn't much else that was done particularly well. I guess goalies were found. They did get good goalies across the board. They did a good job board. of finding and developing goalies. Don't say that we're not fair graders when it comes yeah. to report cards. We gave uh, them a, a B plus. But something. the defense, when um, 
when Jim Benning took over, he could look at that defense and, and see that it needed to be turned over at some point. You had guys like Alex Edler and Chris Tanev and, and Dan Hamhuis, and there were a lot of miles on those guys, and they were going to need to be turned over. And eventually they were. They were just turned over for the wrong players, save for Quinn Hughes. You know, the way it went, if you think about it, was OEL replaced Edler and Tyler Myers replaced Tanev. That's a fair way to look at it. But they were done at uh, extreme cost, OEL, in terms of the actual trade to get him, but also money. And, oh, yeah, they weren't nearly as good as Edler and Tanev. There has to be, and you know, we all, we we definitely, Bruff and I have the benefit of hindsight being twenty twenty on this, and we get to look back. But at the same time, everyone in any business, let alone sport, there needs to be a progression plan. There needs to be a plan two or three or four years out, and you get NHL executives will often when they're about to be hired or something. And what's your plan? What does your plan look like? How are you going to do this? And you'll have laid it out two or three or four years in advance. When I talk about knock-on effects, and I use the term a lot, and probably sometimes incorrectly, because I'm not good with that kind of stuff, but the knock-on effects are not year-to-year, but it almost becomes a cumulative effect of not making good, sound decisions four or five years ago coming to affect you now. So It's the, called the chickens coming home to roost. Yes, basically. <laughs> that's really what it is. And the chickens, <laughs> they were roosting last night in Nashville which is very befitting. I don't know why, but it is. Um, they, the, the replacements for Tanev and Edler, as you put it, were probably the most expensive and the least forward-thinking options that they had. They brought in expensive veteran defensemen to replace veteran defensemen. There was nobody in the system that was willing to move into that spot. They didn't have, they didn't have it orchestrated. Right, Other organizations will have a guy or two guys that are ready to step into that net. That's, that's how the, the labor system works in the NHL. So you have younger guys on entry-level deals that when guys get too expensive or too old, they step into the fold. Easier said than done to do that, especially when you're a contender. But the good organizations do it. They do. And when it doesn't go to plan or a prospect doesn't pan out, they've got an option at the ready. The danger for the Canucks right now is that, again, if you put it that OEL and Myers were the replacements for Tanev and Edler, the real scary thing is that what are the replacements going to be for Myers and OEL? Mm -hmm. How are you going to find them? Well, and also, how are you going to get rid of the cap hits? Because they don't exist in the organization, (laughs) and you're going to have to go elsewhere to find them. Now, there is the possibility. The only thing that I'm holding out hope for, like, God forbid they go shopping in free agency. Because at that point, you're just going to get... Uh, I would say above average replacement players at a premium that costs money. I'm making the money gesture with my fingers and thumb here. It's going to cost you a lot of money. Mm -hmm. You can explore the trade market. You can, and you can go armed with not one, but two first round picks. And you can say, are we willing to make a move to bring a guy in to shake something loose from somewhere else? The problem with that is if you look around the league, Over the last calendar year, let's just take that. I think the two most prominent, and I'll say top four defensemen that got moved, were what? Brent Burns and Alexander Romanoff? Well, Devon Taves, if you want to. That wasn't in the last year. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Like, in in the immediacy. Guys that were on new teams this year. Burns and Romanoff. 
because defensemen, if you've got the good ones, you're going to keep them, man. You're going to keep them. You don't trade them. Like, you know, it's it's very difficult. You would have to come with a very, very lucrative package. It's got to be a better way to say that. You would have to come with a very lucrative package Mm -hmm. to try and pry a really good defenseman out of one of these other teams. Look what the Oilers were resorted to a few years ago when they traded Taylor Hall for Adam Larson. Mm -hmm. They were that desperate. And the... The analogy I made to that is you're walking through the desert and you haven't had a drink in a, you know, three days and someone offers you a bottle of water and someone says, and you say, okay, well, thanks for the bottle of water. And that person says, oh, no, there's a price behind it. And like, oh, how much is it? A bottle of water usually costs like you know a, a buck or two. I'll mm-hmm. pay that. And then the person goes, uh, it's actually $5,000 for this bottle of water. You're so desperate. Yeah. Well, if you don't get the bottle of water, you're going to die. And that was the situation that the Oilers were in because they had all these good forwards. And they were sitting there going, well, if we don't get defensemen, we're screwed here. Yeah. Like, we, we don't have a chance without another defenseman. Mm-hmm. And the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over. So they took a shot. It was It was a bad gamble. But it was a gamble that they put themselves in by not developing enough defensemen in their own organization. And this is what the Canucks have done. And this is why I bristled five years ago when I would hear management say things like, well, you know, uh, we're we're okay trading away a second-round draft pick because, you know, that that player won't be in the lineup for four or five years. Well, we're four or five years here now. Like, this this is four or five years later. And this is what we're dealing with. And if you look back on the Canucks draft record over the last little bit. First of all, and this is very important, they haven't made enough picks for a bad team. Mm-hmm. And they haven't used enough quality picks on defensemen. Now, everyone will say, well, that's what led them into the Ole Ulevi bust. And I will immediately re- retort and say, that's why you need to get more picks because you're not going to nail all of them. And it is arrogant to think that you are such a good scout, such a good eye for talent that you don't need as many draft picks as other teams because you've got you've got the eye. You've got the eye that other people don't have. And this is why the Canucks are in this position right now. Yeah, and you're you, they're playing catch up, not the condiment. They're they're playing catch up and I I I'm going to be very 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 curious to see if one They'll give any any insight into how they're going to address this going into the offseason and then the draft and then free agency. And two, if they've got the wherewithal to pull something off. Because time kind of becomes of the essence here. I, I mean, the, the thought of rolling it back for a second consecutive year with a blue line that goes largely unchanged is going to be a real tough sell. It's going to be a tough sell to talk it. It's going to be a tough sell to the guys in the room. It's going to be a tough sell to fans and media because that was one of the most glaring issues between year one and year two of the Boudreaux era, as short as it was. It was, wait a minute, you're coming back with largely the same defense. This year, it's been, it's been, it's been, it's been a problem in every way, shape, or form. Right? They've tried different things. They've given different looks, different deployments. They added a guy in bear. The result is that they've allowed the second most goals in the NHL, and they might end up conceding the most by the time it's all said and done. It's them and Anaheim in a race for this. 
Yes, goaltending's played its part, without question. But they, the, this is going to need to be fixed. And it stacks up for a super interesting offseason, right? Because you're just saying, like, how? How are you going to do this? Trader Jim. This is a rabbit out of the hat type of situation. It is. It is. I mean, and that, I mean, it kind of makes it exhilarating in one sense. Because you know, <laughs> I mean, I, again, I, I, I challenge someone to show me a world where they come back with Hughes, OEL, Myers, and then insert fourth, Luke Shen as yeah. your top four again. Groundhog Day. Mm-hmm. Are we doing this again? Really? Ned? Is that you? <laughs> uh, but I w- let's move on here to the article that IMAC wrote. This is quintessential Vancouver, by the way. We really, really sink our teeth into the local hockey squadron. So we get to know them beyond just players, right? Not just laundry with numbers on their backs. <laughs> no. We get to learn about the interpersonal dynamics. How they feel about each other their friendships, and the friendships that they're working on. Yeah, uh, IMAC wrote about Elias Pettersson and JT Miller and their relationship with each other. And we've seen Elias Pettersson interviewed a few times about JT Miller. And, you know, he stuck up for him on After Hours. And he said, you know, like, I know people like to shh on, on, on players or you know, but he said he, you know, JT Miller just wants wants to win, and I think there's been this concession from both of them that they're different, very different personalities, and maybe in the past they haven't always seen eye to eye. Um, but I just, <laughs> I, I know some people take this stuff seriously, and uh, but we're not going to take this stuff too seriously. Like I think it's relevant to talk about, but not in an ultra serious way, because this. This quote that G.T. Miller had made me laugh out loud when I read it. And this is the quote that I got. Petey and my relationship has come a long way. We're still working at it. We're completely different people. You know what I mean? You're not going to be best friends forever, BFFs, with everybody. But at the same time, you come to work together. We are polar opposite in a lot of ways. But we're working at it. We've come a long way. Are they in couples counseling? Like, is this something that's that that the quote about we're working at it reminded me of uh, old school when they're in the counseling? Like, I thought we were. I thought we were. Are we in the trust tree? Are we? What, I are, thought we were in the trust tree with in the nest. Are we not? <laughs> like, it is. It is incredible that it's gotten to this point, and it actually makes me think that. Either those two have approached each other and said, we got to work out our differences or the organization, either the coaching staff or other players, maybe Horvat when he was still here, or maybe the management group said, Hey, listen, guys, you got to find a way to get along because this whole, we're, we're working at it and we've come a long way suggests to me that this is more than like, we've actually come to appreciate each other. No, yeah. it's like we're working at this because we know we need to coexist together. Yeah, I mean, I I have a little bit of experience working with a difficult individual on a daily basis. Yeah, Andy can be. Uh, How he, dare you? Honestly, <laughs> Andy, when when he when he uh, when when the show is over, Andy is a real bear. Are are we still in the tree? Just throwing <laughs> stuff around the studio. <laughs> we still in the tree. Please help uh, me. Okay, so there's yeah, and then there's Greg. 
I'm stuck in a room with this guy. Um, this There's a few things going on here, all of which are hilarious. One, folks, this is the kind of stuff that you start focusing on when the team ain't winning hockey games and has no purpose for the remainder of the year. You can't write about the tank for the 9 millionth iteration. You just can't. You have to find stuff where you find stuff. And right now, after the weekend, uh, the main player following his five-point performance and his appearance on After Hours was Elias Pettersson. In that interview, Pettersson was asked about his relationship with Miller, and it was an answer where you're like, oh, that's interesting. Mm -hmm. Because didn't come out and say that they were best friends and kind of tried to defend Miller's mood and antics. But also you could tell that, yes, as Miller confirmed in the piece to IMAC, they're just two completely different people. Now, I saw a lot of comments underneath saying, this doesn't matter. Everyone shows up to work at lots of different workplaces with people they don't like. They still manage to get through. That's absolutely right. In a way, this doesn't matter because they don't have to be best friends. What I think the story here is, I think as we see it emerge, is that I think this is more of a challenge for Miller, to be honest, than anybody else. Because the organization has essentially said, uh, Petey's our best player. Petey's going to be the next captain. Petey's going to get a big old extension offered to him this summer that's going to make him the longest signed player on the team and is going to make him the highest paid player on the team. So JT, and I, I did think that there's been a couple times where Tockett, where he was like, enough with the stick smashing and enough with the feeling entitled. Well, Tockett I, has been far more critical of JT Miller than he has been of Elias Pettersson. Yep, and I think part of that is uh, Miller's going to have to understand what his role is on the team Mm -hmm. because it ain't going to be the leader and it ain't going to be the captain. That's going to be another guy. He can be a fiery, emotional dude that gets the guys going, but he's not the alpha of the team. That's He's not there to take them down. You know, he's not there to bully the room into playing better. Because that's not his job. I mean, you who's it's it's counterproductive. Yeah. So th- this is what – I think that's what you really need to understand about what's going on here is it's less about whether Petey or Millsy are best buds and go to, like, 12 West together after mm-hmm. games. And, yeah, they don't have to do that. And, and, and it the best mean, yeah. example is, like, guess what, guys? Tim Thomas wasn't the most popular Bruin. Still played pretty well for them. Yeah, but the key is um, – I think the key is Pedersen, honestly. If there's one thing that's going to come from this season, it's that you'll look back on it, hopefully. I'm being very optimistic here, but you know me, glass half full. Um, This is the year that he made the jump from really good player to he's got got to be in that conversation to be an elite player now. Mm -hmm. There's very few few ways out of the darkness for this organization. He's also got to be a leader. How many many times have we heard uh, talk it, speak about the leadership group and how he needs to get it going. Well, in the article, talk did say, and maybe Millsy can tone it down a bit. Yeah. Millsy. That was my takeaway from the whole Mm -hmm. thing, is that this is more about kind of telling J.T. Miller where his role is going to be moving forward. And that's not because he's – it's more because of how good and how important Pedersen is than all due respect to Miller. They're at different stages of their career. They're at different stages of their life. They see the growth potential. I think I think that's one of the things that talking especially has done a good job of identifying. I mean, when he talked about coming in and I and uh, you know identifying the leadership group and making that a focal point, it wasn't just lip service. Mm-hmm. Like they need a direction, and that's a really good way traditionally, especially with the old hockey dudes, is 
find your leadership group and put the onus on them to figure it out, right? You guys have to figure it out. And whether it's like in the Sedine era where there was a collective number of voices in the room that held people accountable or whether it's one guy leading by example, whatever the case, you just got to figure out who's going to lead you out of the darkness. They're not going to get out of the darkness without a... Bunch of defensemen. Oh. A bunch of defensemen, but also a leadership group that is um, that evolves and learns and is together on these issues to hold everyone, including themselves, accountable. And I, 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 sometimes we talk about culture and leadership too much because we, we're focusing on it when the obvious example is, hey, look at the defense, right? But... I think what we've heard from everyone that's come back uh, in the last few years, whether it's BXA or the Sedines or whoever was part of that leadership group, there was that message there that the leaders on that team, and it was multiple players, were running that team along with the head coach, Alain Vigneault. But Vigneault was happy to put a lot of that on the players. Like, it was great. Yeah. It, this coach hammering Because he away knows that, that, like, the players have to want to win. They have to want to do all these things and sacrifice, and they have to want to do it together, and they have to want to think, okay, well, let's let's get together as a group and talk about this stuff. Mm-hmm. And I think the, the, the room was so... The, the team was just in transition. So what happens a lot of the time with a team in transition is... People look and say, well, this team isn't very good, so you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to look out for number one, mm-hmm. and I'm going to make sure that I'm taken care of and that I get paid. And when I go into negotiation, I'm going to say, look at what this guy's getting paid. I'm doing better than him. Pay me like that. And then it becomes more about the individual than the team. And how many times have we watched the Canucks in the last little bit and said, these guys play like a bunch of individuals. It's a big reason why Boston's been, been able to have that sustained level of excellence for as long as they have. Yeah. It's, it's, there's no like gray area there. You go in, you know who the leaders are, you know who the alphas are, and then you also look at their cap-friendly numbers and you realize that they've all kind of taken less than market value in order to keep that group together and to keep that level of excellence maintained. And there's no questions about it mm-hmm. like Jim Montgomery came in there in all due respect to the coaching job that he's done he didn't have to reinvent the wheel he, Bergeron's gonna hold guys accountable Krejci's gonna hold guys accountable and then when you talk about talent they're also your best players mm-hmm. so they're the ones that are racking up the points if they're not doing it Marshawn's doing it if they're not doing it Pasternak's doing it and then everyone else falls in line underneath they know what's ex- expected of them they know how hard and how diligent you have to be to be successful and those guys all have a Stanley Cup to show for it. Remember yeah. that? Mm-hmm. They won a Stanley Cup. Multiples, according to you. Yeah, multiple Stanley Cups, especially Bergeron. So anyway, we're going to turn back to the on-ice product coming up next. Randeep Jand is going to join us. Uh, color man for the Vancouver Canucks. You hear him right on Sportsnet 650. You heard him on the call last night. Canucks 5-4 overtime, sorry, shootout loss uh, to the Nashville Predators in Nashville. Uh, we can talk about the blue line. We can talk about the issues that they had in Nashville, what to look for moving forward. Are there any bright spots? We would like a ray of optimism and hope here on the Halford and Bruff Show. You have to stick around to find out. Uh, 7.30 segment coming up. Don't forget to get your What We Learns in for 8.30. Halford Bruff, Sportsnet 650. Talking all Canucks all the time. It's Canucks Talk with Jamie Dodd and Thomas Drance. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm 
Andre Kuzmenko into the Nashville zone. Left wing for JT Miller, shot tip, they score! Miller threw it to the net, Andre Kuzmenko deflects it home with 15.4 seconds remaining in the third period. The Canucks have tied the game at four. Can you believe it? And what a play by Andre Kuzmenko. Not only the goal, but the way he wills the puck into the neutral zone, bouncing off checks, and then creates space, gets the pass to JT Miller, and an excellent tip to score this goal. 7.32 on a Wednesday. Happy Wednesday, everybody. Halford Bruff, Sportsnet 6.50. Halford and Bruff of the Morning is brought to you by the Delari family of Acura dealers. Experience the Delari difference today by visiting your nearest Delari Acura dealer today. We are in the midst of Hour 2 of the program. That voice you just heard, Randy Jandis, he's going to join us in just a second here. Uh, Hour 2 of this program is brought to you by North Star Metal Recycling. Vancouver's premier metal recycler pays the highest prices on scrap metal. North Star Metal Recycling, they recycle, you get paid. Visit them at 1170 Powell Street in Vancouver. To the phone lines we go. Uh, radio analyst for the Vancouver Connects. You heard him on the call last night. Joins us now in the morning, Randy Janda here on the Halford and Brough Show on Sportsnet 650. Morning, Randy. How are you? Good morning, gentlemen. I, I got to say, I was listening to you a little bit earlier, and you guys made the old school reference for uh, the marriage counseling. Mm-hmm. I can't get this out of my head now. I'm ex- basically visualizing Ian McIntyre as Dr. Jennifer Melfi from The Sopranos <laughs> and playing that role in the room between Tony Soprano and Carmelo Soprano. I mean, it's, it's perfect. We were, I, mean, I don't know if you heard the rest of the segment, but we were joking. We were like, this is kind of the coverage that you're going to get now moving forward is maybe not necessarily focused in the day-to-day, game-to-game results, but the big picture stuff. And hey, look, I mean, <laughs> whether you, know, you kind of poke fun at the piece or you take it dead seriously or whatever, it's hard not to agree with one statement of fact. Uh, there will be eyeballs on the Pedersen-Miller relationship moving forward because they've been asked about it and because their responses to those questions. It's just a dynamic that's out there, and we're all going to kind of analyze it. For sure, and you know, with Bo Horvat. Previously, the the leadership focus was on him. He was kind of like that, you know, that buffer, right, so to speak, where uh, you could focus on him with Elias Pedersen and JT Miller. Were, and I think they're both right in the piece for saying they're polar opposites. Elias Pedersen is is a, a different type of person. JT Miller, you know, has those moments where he's he's extremely passionate for better or for worse. So, you know, I like the fact that they're saying the right things. I like the fact that they're acknowledging that, yeah, maybe in the past they hadn't been the tightest uh they hadn't maybe understood each other all that well but there is movement but these are the types of things especially when the team is losing uh you're going to zero in on but i like the fact that they actually addressed it because how long in the city have we talked about hey what's that relationship like uh you know what's going on here they don't play that uh, together that often outside the power play so the fact that they actually addressed it to me is a positive thing yeah the other way that we kind of spun it was you know we feel like it's very obvious that the organization has very high lofty aspirations and expectations for Elias Pettersson. Uh, I would assume that he's the captain in waiting. You know, he's been asked about it already. It would also probably go hand in hand with a long-term extension this summer if they're able to come to an agreement. So it does create uh, a hierarchy, which has been missing since Horvat was traded in that there's going to be a definitive, clear captain. And then you, you do have to kind of fall in line behind that. That's not to say that you have to alter everything about your personality or approach or how you go about the game, but um, there is a leadership hierarchy for a reason. And I think it'll be very curious to see uh, in light of what Rick Tockett has said and what he'll continue to do, how Miller responds to that, because 
I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. This is going to be Pedersen's team moving forward. Yeah, it certainly looks that way. If you look at the way that everything since that Bo Horvat trade went down, even the way that, you know, the questions have been asked essentially since the All-Star break, even at the All-Star game, it, it is all trending in that direction at the very least. If, if you look at the way that, you know, he's been dealing with it as well. He's been a lot, he's been extremely mature with the way he's dealt with a lot of these questions. Now, on the JT Miller front, and I think we got to give respect to Ian McIntyre on this because it feels like with every piece he does on JT, it, you get a little bit more on the, maybe the mentality of the player. He tries to, you know, he's very honest in his last few interviews that he's done with Ian McIntyre, uh, talking about how the emotion, and he's got to sometimes control the emotion. Uh, that's a challenge, to, you know, being a leader, it's one thing to be passionate, one thing to have that reaction, positive or negative, on the bench. But as you are going to this chapter, the Canucks, which, assuming that JT Miller's on the team, which, you know, is up for debate these days, according to reports, or at least the fact that he's been asked about by a team or two, uh, the fact is, if you're going to move forward with a younger team and if you're going to take potentially a couple of years to, to really find that competitive window, you're going to have to be a different type of leader. You're going to have to make sure that you're supporting those younger players and your mentality, yes, you want to be passionate, but it's got to be a little different. So wearing that A is still going to be important for this guy. And yes, you do have to fall in line to whoever that next captain is, especially with Elise Pedersen. But I think with JT, it's, you know, that one comment by Rick talk about smashing sticks and all that, like that was, that was something that was pointing at one specific player, maybe two, uh, if you want to throw Connor Garland in there. But I look at that situation and say, all right, yeah, that, that's telling you something to say. Maybe that stoicism that some of the other players have or dealing with you know, a negative in a certain way is, is talking, talking doesn't want that, right? He doesn't want necessarily that, that passion stick-breaking on the ice, and it's more about channeling it into a more productive manner. Uh, we now turn our attention to the plight of the Vancouver Canucks blue line and uh, the warts and all were on display last night at numerous times, but largely when... Uh, Riley Stillman and Tyler Myers were on the ice. I mean, you're right there, vantage point, you know, calling it as it unfolds. What was that like to see the kind of, I mean, I, I listened to Satin Bick during the intermissions yesterday, and they said that might have been one of the worst games or the most error-filled games that Tyler Myers has ever had in a Canucks uniform. What was it like being on the call for it? Yeah, no, I agree. I think uh, one of our, our post-game chats was that's probably the worst game I've seen Tyler Myers play. And, you know, we've seen our fair share here. He's and I'll be honest, I've been one of the people that say, hey, you know, there's moments in certain games that he does make a good player. He plays uh, an understated game, and we don't really focus on it because that's what we expect. Uh, yesterday was was the worst one I've seen. And, and the issue with that was every single play on those four goals, if you look at, you know, the Cole Smith goal where it, you just, you're just watching Tyler Myers watch the puck, right? Get behind Colin Delia and making a play – of a losing the puck but then after that you're actually questioning like where is the play being made here what are you doing are you taking the man there's three national players in front of the goal and yet you're behind Colin Delia that happens later on in the game as well you know the ability um to to really not even make a decision in time where he stumbles and I know that's going to be gifted and it has been gift but that that goal later on in the game where Granlin scores the 4-2 goal guys uh, that's a a delay and that just leads to, to chaos. And I know that's kind of his nickname here. But to me, watching that yesterday, and with now Oliver ekman Larson out of the mix for a bit, this is going to put a, a heavy focus on Tyler Myers. And when you give up 10 high-danger chances when you're on the ice and you only 
have two going forward. That, that tells you something uh, about where his play is right now. And Stillman-Myers combination was rough, but I think Tyler Myers, on a personal level, there was very little confidence. And a guy that is going to need to really amp up his game with Luke Shen now out of the equation, uh, as we understand, because this team is going to need guys that play a physical style in front of their net. That net front presence is going to be so required. And on two of those goals, instead of being in front of the goalie, Tyler Myers was behind the goalie doing who knows what. Do you remember those old, were they Miller Lite commercials where you'd have that taste great, less filling argument? Like, and they would have like, taste great. No, it's less filling. You could have that argument with the Canucks defense when it came to, uh, are they struggling mostly with moving the puck or in zone defending? And you'd have like a bunch of people would be like moving the puck. And then others would be like in zone defending or defending the blue line. It's not often that you see, like most teams will be like, you know what, we're, we're pretty great at, you know, um, packing the middle of the ice, blocking shots and in zone defending. But unfortunately, we, you know, we don't have enough puck movers or you might have a team that's like, we got a lot of puck movers, you know, guys, but, but, you know, maybe they're a little bit undersized. So they're going to struggle um, in zone defending and, and moving guys in front. Fr- the Canucks have, Canucks have issues with both, do they not? They do, and that's the reality of what this blue line is right now. We can focus on Oliver Ekman-Larsen because that contract till 2027 is not looking great at all. Tyler Myers, we know what he's been. But even beyond that, guys, this is a team that is right now, outside of Quinn Hughes, you start looking at that back end. And I like certain things that Ethan Baird does. He makes a great pass to Kuzmenko yesterday. But, you know, there's certain moments where you're saying, okay, this guy – I can see a future with him on the back end, but outside of Ethan Bear, Quinn Hughes, where else are you saying, what's the forte of this defense? Other than those two guys, where I'm, I'm giving Ethan Bear the benefit of doubt of being a, a pretty good player and a useful player, maybe not necessarily a top pairing defenseman. Could I see him uh, as a number four or five defenseman? Absolutely, I can. Uh, the end zone defending is a problem for this team, and they're in a situation right now where, you know, even that play by Riley Stillman yesterday where off the face-off, he goes hero mode. He goes renegade. Um, we can blame Tyler Myers on, on that goal of where he is and what's he, what's he doing. But when your partner lets you dry like that and you're, you're stuck in no man's land and you're not competent to begin with, that tells me that, you know, forget end zone defending. This guy's going hero mode in the neutral zone. And in terms of puck-moving defensemen, we see it. Quinn Hughes, Ethan Bear can make a pass. Quinn Hughes is the guy. He's having an unbelievable season. But outside of that, you know, there's a reason that Canucks fans and media in the city, when Christian Olanen has a pretty good game, um, everybody's kind of raving because there's a real lack of any know. you know defenseman that can activate or make a pass. So you're right, it's it's both, and this is going to be the big question for me. And I, I feel like I've asked this question numerous times, even with the Jim Benning regime, is you can't necessarily come back with the same back end. And there are three free agents on this list, whether you know it's Luke Shen, obviously Kyle Burrows, and Christian Olanen. But you're going to need major surgery on that back end based on the fact that they're not capable of doing both of those things you mentioned. And you can't have that in the NHL. Otherwise, you turn into the Anaheim Ducks, who are, who are atrocious. And you can't, that ha- can't ha- let that happen for the second straight year, uh, being so bad defensively. Yeah, I, I mean, handicap management's uh, chances of fixing this in the next year or two, because that's the timeline that they've given themselves to turn this team around. Yeah, I think it's doable. I think, you know, you're going to have to make some bold moves. And if you can get more picks 
at this deadline, whether it's a Luke Shen deal, if you can get a, you know, a little bit of flexibility from a cap perspective, potentially taking on some bad contracts now that the Canucks do have some cap space so that you have assets to deal and potentially add as a sweetener to get rid of one of these deals. I, you know, it's unfortunate that we're talking about that, but that's how you're going to have to extract one of these contracts off of your roster. And, and I'm looking at the Tyler Myers one potentially. You know, if there's a team out there that would take him on a one-year deal, uh, I'm sure there are because there are teams like Ottawa who are looking at right shot defensemen right now and saying, hey, our left is loaded, but our right-hand side, there's nobody really coming up. So I think there is a pretty good chance that that happens, but that's why getting picks at this deadline. The Bo Horvat deal was really important, but what do you get for Luke Shen? Uh, you know, are there potentially other deals to be made where you can add a pick or two? Because those picks, those are going to be currency for you in the offseason when you're looking to make these moves. And I think it's doable, but you have to add one or two more picks. Randy, when do you think we'll see Thatcher Demko in goal for the Canucks? Ooh, the million-dollar question. So, you know, even hitting up practice, listening to Rick Tockett, um, about a week ago, very optimistic. And I know the most recent comments that Rick Tockett has made, uh, very optimistic as well. But at the same time, I'm not going to believe it till I see it. So to me, I feel like coming back to Vancouver, maybe that, you know, Boston Dallas game is something that you know if you're overly optimistic but I don't I don't necessarily think that's necessary here slow play it Thatcher Demko in my opinion is not necessarily required to come back ASAP what are you what are you trying to achieve here uh, on two fronts a you know we know where the team is at you have Delia playing you have Stilovs who's been pretty good despite the, the level of competition he had to play in his first game so I'm okay with you know coming out with them for the next little bit here. Maybe you give Spencer Martin a chance to come back up and play a few games. But also at the same time, the discussion of trade talk and building up that value, I'm not necessarily here for that. I think that value still would be pretty low. So slow play it. Make sure that he's right when he comes back. And I'm sure the team is considering that. But I don't see the rush here. So more than anything, you know, the Bruins stars, I know that's probably the realistic, you know, target right now but I'd even look further I'd look at that Saturday March 4th game against the Toronto Maple Leafs if you're going to really slow play give them a couple of weeks give them that practice time let them back up a few games and then you know bring them back maybe for that that Saturday game or something around there maybe the next Predators game on Monday March 6th we're speaking to Randy Janda here on the Halford and Bruff show on Sportsnet 650 uh, Randy let's end with a positive. So yesterday, right. a terrific performance from Andre Kuzmenko. Uh, showed off the full finishing arsenal, actually, to me, uh, in terms of how he got his goals, the times he got his goals. And it's not just the production that's a positive. I think also the fact that he was challenged openly by Rick Tucker, the fact that he had his ice time reduced and was benched for a little bit, and that he accepted that, relished the opportunity to learn to get better, and then went out and really performed well in the face of some adversity uh, again, we're looking for positives. We may be stretching for positives, but I thought overall it was one of the best things of the night, maybe the best thing of the night. For sure. And that first goal was just like a goal scorer's goal. He goes top corner. UC Saros, one of the best goalies in the league, is not going to get that one. Um, the second goal, however, was different. That one was showing what maybe he's learned or taken to heart over the last week or so of when he is stressed to play a more north-south game, you know, not having that east-west cutting back and, and delaying that was just a player that a to me was focused understood what he had to do within the 15 seconds that were left in the game and beyond that just 
you know, leadership comes in different ways, right? We talk about JT Miller. We talk about Elias Pettersson. Kuzmenko in that moment, he's not going to be, he's not going to be wearing an A, but he understands that Connor Garland gives away the puck about 10 seconds before that. Looks like you're about, Nashville's about to kill that game, kill the clock. They're in the corner. There's a scrum. And Kuzmenko gets some luck. Puck bounces out. But at the same time, the way that he just skates up the ice, understanding what he has to do and then drive the net. That goal he drives in that he ends up scoring. But there's two or three instances before that early on in that game where you're seeing a player find that area, get those passes, and then also attack defensemen when he's on the puck. So to me, this is a, a guy that's getting more confident. You know, a week ago, just over a week ago, he had a 10-minute game against Detroit. And yesterday, he ends up playing 22 minutes. He's got the confidence of the coach. And Tockett has been critical of him. But it's been uh, from a place of, hey, we know this guy has more to give. He's an unbelievable offensive talent. So, therefore, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be a little bit more honest with him. And I think that's paying dividends early on. If you're a Canucks fan, if you're a Canucks management member that is looking at that $5.5 million deal and saying, you know what, if this guy can continue to trend in this way and show games like that where he's playing that more north-south game, he's got confidence of the coach, that looks like a discount. Randeep, thanks for doing this today, bud. We really appreciate it. Uh, enjoy the St. Louis game. Have a good call. We'll talk again next week. Thanks, boys. Have a great one. You too. Thanks, Randeep Janda, color analyst here on the uh, Sportsnet 650 Radio Network for your Vancouver Canucks. So we talked about when Thatcher Demko might return to the Vancouver Canucks lineup. Well, speaking of Thatcher Demko, Elliot Friedman in his most recent 32 Thoughts column, which you can read now at sportsnet.ca. I've also tweeted out a link to it. Um, He talks about the Kings, Los Angeles Kings goaltending situation. And he writes this, I believe they're going to consider Thatcher Demko, but that may not be possible before the deadline. We've talked about Thatcher Demko uh, as a potential fit for the LA Kings goaltending situation, which is not great right now. They have so many prospects. Yeah, and needs to be solved. So we've speculated about this. I know Sat has kind of led the charge on this. I don't know if it's because of any specific intel or he just looks at the LA Kings and sees an obvious fit there. He sees a team that needs to improve its goaltender, does not have a goaltender of the future, Mm -hmm. kind of is in its window right now with some good young players contributing, but also some veterans on the team that – they're still good, but who knows how long they'll still be good. The Kings are ready to step on the gas. They're ready to go and yeah. get the solution in net, which is crazy because they have so much money tied up in their goaltending. <laughs> for now, but not for long. Though. No, I they're know, both, but I'm just saying. They're like, both they're yeah. contractually coming to the end of their commitments. to Talk about things not panning out for you. They had a succession plan in place in net. Cal Peterson was supposed to take over from Jonathan Quick and was going to be the next guy. And also they're one of the few teams that have so many good prospects they could actually afford to give away one or two and still have a ton left well, over. Well, when I say step on the gas, like, I would not be surprised if they're in on Demko and obviously Chikrin. Mm-hmm. And that's mm-hmm. those are win-now moves. Those aren't let's plan for the future. Because they've got, I mean, their defense is hilarious. Like They've got so many young guys that are just – either wanting to take that next step or maybe it's not necessarily in this group, but they've also got an embarrassment of riches where they can move these things. And there's no way they're going to be able to afford all of them down the road. Yeah, and tradable assets are, you know, this is, again, here's a situation that you could probably 
I don't want to say take advantage of, but at least slightly exploit if you're the Vancouver Canucks. Because it's a team that does have a wealth of young defensive prospects and defensemen on the team. Uh, they would presumably want to or have to move out one, especially if they go the full nine and get it. someone like Chikrin. But it's it's one situation. It's it's one When it comes situation. to Demko, though, um, and Fridge writes, it may not be possible before the deadline. Do you think that's related to Demko's health status? Probably. Yeah, because they could make it happen before oh, yeah. the deadline. You know who they'd trade back to Vancouver? Jonathan Quick. He doesn't have trade protection, not according to Cap Friendly. So they could do that along, of course, with prospects and draft picks and that sort of thing. Sure. But I'm wondering if the Kings are looking at that situation and going, Demko, first of all, got off to a pretty bad start to the season. Uh, he's got an injury, which apparently is a groin injury. And so you're kind of like, oh, that's pretty dicey if we're going to make this deal work by trading away Jonathan Quick. Now, I don't know if the Kings would absolutely need to do that. They might have the cap space to be like, okay, we'll just keep Jonathan Quick and we'll carry three goalies even if necessary. I, I don't know how that would work. I don't think they have the cap space to do that. I'm looking, okay. I'm on their cap-friendly page right now. It would probably need to be money in, money out to get right. that unless the Canucks retained or something. Um, other things that Elliot Friedman wrote – about the Vancouver Canucks, uh, he named a couple of players in the piece, Luke Shen and Brock Besser. First of all, with Luke Shen, Fridge reports that Shen was scheduled to return home out of the lineup until dealt. As of Tuesday night, Fridge is not convinced the the team that Shen is going to is finalized, but he thinks after a quiet few days, talks around Shen intensified to the point where there was a feeling it would happen. Um, he says that if Vancouver didn't get at least a third-round draft pick, they weren't going to do it. So I assume they have an offer on the table, or at least they feel pretty confident that they can do better than a third-round draft pick. Uh, Fridge also reports that they're still working hard on Besser. Um, Fridge writes, I've had mixed messages on Washington. Some sources saying there's never been interest, some saying there has. Whatever the case, it's complicated. And he also says... It's unlikely anything happens with JT Miller, but as he's said on on the broadcast, um, I think teams want to see what the Canucks might be willing to do. And then he adds, if there's a group of players who can't wait for all of this to end, it's this group. Well, I have bad news for the Canucks players who want all of this speculation to end. The trade deadline ain't going to end at all. Just starts the next set of trade talks, really. The draft. Start looking towards June and July. And we got months to get into that. No, it's all very interesting. There were some other developments from around the NHL that might affect this trade deadline as well. We're getting some reports out of Nashville that Ryan Johansson is now maybe facing season-ending surgery after limping off the ice last night. Anthony Mantha got hurt in, in Washington. I do wonder if maybe that plays into a Brock Besser deal at all. But is Washington even in this race anymore? Doesn't look like it. It doesn't look like Nashville will be either. Anyway, lots more to get into. Eight o'clock hour. Chris Faber is going to join us. One of our favorite guests. <laughs> Please stop. Boo. <laughs> We're also going to give away a pair of tickets to go see Guns N' Roses. Uh, that's two tickets to Guns N' Roses. All you need to do is send a What We Learned into 650-650. It's the Dunbar Lumber text line. Make it a good What We Learned. Hashtag it WWL and put a rose emoji in there so we know you want to be entered into the grand prize draw. 
for a pair of tickets to see GNR later this year. It's the Halford and Bruff Show on Sportsnet 650.